0: Today's program is brought to you by MoFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of
1: In the
2: Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands
1: more.
3: Are you interested in discovering amazing, delicious food from around the world and having it delivered right to your doorstep? If you are, this episode of Tech Bytes is for you. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. It is... Thursday at 11 a.m., new time for Tech Bytes, the weekly radio show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is really great um, and is actually happening on the coffee table in the studio. We are talking with a bunch of companies that curate international food items from around the globe, have great e-commerce websites with a lot of robust editorial. And with a click-click, you can have it all delivered right to your kitchen or couch, because a lot of it is snacks. And so we're going to be talking to all of them a little bit later today. But before we do that, let's go around and introduce everybody in the room so we can match names to the voices, because that's always helpful. And we do that by talking about apps. We always start the show with apps. Old favorites, something new you discovered, the one that's been living on your home screen since you got your phone. We'll start off with David Tatassori, our trusty engineer, studio manager, mission Hello. control.
0: Mission control. We How? are in orbit.
3: We are. Well, actually, I mean, you know, we are in a shipping container, which is kind of tin can-like. If you want to make this spaceship reference,
0: yeah, I mean, I think this could have doubled as a, a spaceship set in like a sixty sci-fi movie, maybe.
3: Right, or at least the bunker in the sci at the like uh, Cape Canaveral station where we have to bunker in after the apocalypse, or if there's you know some you know cataclysmic weather
0: at, at the very least, yeah,
3: yeah. You have an app for us this week? Uh,
0: yeah, I got to give it up for uh, TuneIn Radio again. It's a uh, podcasting app that we have begun exploring here at the network. Um, just another platform for you to get all these great Heritage Radio Network shows. TuneIn.com. There's an app for it uh, as well. Obviously, um, yeah, it's great. It's just I, I use it. I used it before uh, coming here to keep all my podcasts organized because I'm an Android user, not. Uh, Apple, so I don't have access to the iTunes store on my phone.
3: So all of the Heritage Radio Network programming is on it? Absolutely. Including Tech Bytes?
0: Including Tech Bytes.
3: Amazing. We're going to go right to it and subscribe and download everything. And give it great reviews. If you're subscribing to Tech Bytes on your favorite podcast platform and you like what you hear, give us a review. We love good reviews. We love feedback. We're very interactive. Also joining us today is Eric Rhee. Who has a company called? I may not pronounce this entirely correctly. Umlicious. That's correct. Ooh. Perfect. I, I did it phonetically.
2: It's it's supposed to be umami and delicious kind of mashed together. So umlicious is umami and delicious. So
3: I was actually toying with the idea of saying umilicious.
2: We to, we toyed with the idea of that too, but decided that umlicious was was just rolled off the tongue better. Okay. Yeah. So. But, but if you want to call it Umilicious, totally fine, as long as, <laughs> as long as you buy something, right?
3: So, Eric, do you have an app that you like? I
2: do. Uh, fascinating app that I recently downloaded. My wife and I drive into the city all the time, and, you know, parking is expensive, and there's an app called Lux Parking, L-U-X-E, and they're actually a valet service that comes and meets you, takes your car, and parks it for you so that you could just drop your car off curbside anywhere in the city.
3: That sounds amazing. Do we know how it works?
2: Yeah, so it's an app, and it's kind of like reverse Uber, where you, you're basically calling somebody to come pick up your car wherever you are, and then you give them the keys, and they go park the car, and then you just basically pay an hourly rate. And uh, I think you know with the whole referral bonus and all that stuff. Your first or two valets are free. It's it's basically a, an on-demand valet service.
3: And what is the hourly rate? I mean, for people listening who are not parking cars in Manhattan and New York City. Parking can be twenty-five dollars an hour.
2: Yeah, I, we've um, so for us like if we want to get get a quick bite, um, two hours it's probably fifteen to twenty bucks. So it's almost like two for one. Yeah, and the convenience of curbside is amazing.
3: Are you worried at all about just handing your keys to a guy on the street?
2: I, we certainly or worry gal, about it. Yeah, person. That's true. They have both, and we're not too worried because in theory. We, we've built enough confidence in things like Uber and Lyft when somebody else is driving you that, you know, the liability and all that stuff, if, if something happens to it, that's what we have auto insurance for. So
3: That's a good way of looking at it. I always think of the, um, I'm going to date myself here, the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Have people seen this? Mm-hmm. Where they take the dad's vintage, very expensive convertible out on the town and they valet park it, and the valet parking guys basically have a, have a, big road tour with it and
0: joyride joyride Joyride. thank
3: you that's the word i was looking for joyride and put a bajillion miles onto it and we have a prius so
2: he's welcome to joyride at all because the the mileage is so awesome so
3: (laughs) you know that you you mentioned something very interesting which is the trust factor that services like uber and airbnb and things like that have created it's a interesting uh, result and effect of a lot of these different seemingly technological service companies, where now we're kind of maybe learning how to be a little more trustworthy with people yeah, than we th- normally would. I mean, on, you know, five years ago, I think most of us in this room would be hard pressed to say we'd go and sleep in a stranger's apartment in a city we've never been to, right? Yeah. Or let a stranger come sleep in our apartment.
2: It's the transparency factor, and there's somebody else helping with that liability too. So I think all that kind of stuff. Even um, you know, there's a website called ShareGrid where you can rent uh, a cinema camera for a day for almost like Airbnb at rates that you've never seen before, and you just trust somebody with a thirty thousand dollar camera. But you have to get a insurance policy too. So yeah, I think the transparency and the and the direct to consumer model is the future, and I think we'll obviously be talking about that later. So. Right.
3: Exactly. Um, David, do you have other David? <laughs> Not David Tadessori, the engineer, but David Folt?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do I have an app that I'm uh, yeah. using all the time? Uh, Pokemon. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, we did
3: a show on Pokemon Go. You did? We did. the. I think it was the second week it was out. And the show was because restaurants were using Pokemon Go to entice customers to come in course, to play yeah. the game. And it mm-hmm. became a became a marketing tool, and actually there were, were Heritage Radio Network Studios, the shipping containers are in the backyard, which people may or may not know, of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And Roberta's is wildly popular. However, um, you know, some of the pizza guys were playing Pokemon Go, and it became like a thing. So, I mean, Pokemon Go would have been okay if that's your app.
1: Uh, I, I, I tried it just uh, out of curiosity once, and uh... And and then just started seeing people in the street using it all the time by groups. You had groups of four, five, six people together looking at their screens, and I just figured that was probably Pokemon. Uh, but no, I mean, right now, actually, I'm looking at uh, at the, the... We just built a Try the World app. Um, where you can't so- talk
3: about that. It has to be something else, because we're going to talk about Try the World. Oh,
1: okay, got it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm using lots of apps, uh, uh, mostly sports-related, so cycling, for instance, uh, looking at... Uh, uh, different apps to sort of track uh, bike rides.
3: So, like Strava.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's one of them, exactly. Yeah, uh, which is super, super cool gamification of sports, uh, and really creates a community as well among uh, people who are into into that.
3: So, Strava is a free app. It's built for cycling and for running. And basically, you make a profile and you can connect with people and follow people, and then it will track you via GPS on your ride. Yeah. So. It's useful in a bunch of different ways. There's the whole bragging rights, like the gamification, like he's saying, where for different segments of the rides or the runs, it'll have the people who have the best times. So there's that whole thing. Your friends that are following you can give you kudos for good rides and good times. But it's also, uh, my husband's a cyclist, and he uses Strava quite a bit. And he uses it also when he's traveling and he's going to a city he has not ridden in and wants to bring his bike he puts in the zip code of the city and then the Strava map comes out up and he'll be able to see where people are riding, what the rides are, if there are group rides and things like that. So it's a, it's a really useful tool if you travel, I think Absolutely. also.
1: Yeah, it's a great way also to to discover the city you're in because biking uh, makes you go in, in places you would ne- never go in usually. And indeed when you, when you travel, it's even better because you just have the, uh, the tour that's ready and, and you can just, uh, Go, go right and discover a new place. It's very yeah. interesting.
3: Yep. So that's a great app. We love Strava. Um, and sitting next to David is his co-founder in Try the World, Kat Varatova. Welcome. Thank you. Do you have an app that you like a lot right now?
4: Uh, well, other than the regular productivity apps, like... Say the one that you love the most or say... your old
3: favorites. I mean, we've, we've heard of a wide range of, of subjects here.
4: Right. Well, I think the one that I use pretty much every day is Spotify. When I wake up in the morning, I love using their uh, Discover feature. I've been a premium user for a while. And what's really cool about it is that uh, it has an algorithm that after, you know, uh, you behaving on the platform and it, it actually knows what you like and then suggests new music uh, based on your preferences. And I think that's uh, some of the coolest uh, new technology uh, that could be applied to pretty much any, any part of your life, not just music. And uh, that's what I really enjoy. They did a
3: really great advertising campaign in the New York City subway, Spotify, when they launched this um, recommendation discovery yeah. component, and they had, I think tweets from actual users or you know tweets from real life, and people were talking about how accurate it was and how, how they really feel good. that Spotify really gets them.: yeah, It and really knows, knows them. you.
4: Does it really Do yeah. you feel that way? It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I would have never discovered the music uh, without Spotify. That, you know, just seems right on, right on point.
3: So that's good. One of, the, one of the sort of potential downsides about all these amazing algorithms that kind of funnel you into the perfect choice online is that we lose a lot of the opportunity for completely spontaneous discovery.
4: It's true. I mean, you could still uh, search for something totally different. You can change your regular routine uh you don't need to be a slave to the algorithm that's true i think people just do it out of habit and because it's there but it's it's very different it's It's convenient
3: it's a very different experience from say walking through a bookstore where you would see piles of books and covers and things like that and maybe gravitate towards something it is different that would be outside of your algorithm
4: yeah or your comfort zone yeah Yeah. for sure
3: yeah spotify that's a good one though specifically the one that sort of tailors new things for you so we have two great companies today that do a similar thing, and that is source and discover foods from around the globe, and they put it onto a website, and you can order it and have it shipped directly to you. The reason why we specifically invited these two different companies onto the show is one of the things we talk about a lot on Tech Bytes and in the food tech world is the way the whole startup new business process works and we've had companies on who are a part of incubators and accelerators and the first one of the first things that a startup company does is they look for mentors and advisors to sort of help them navigate a new industry, navigate a new style of doing business and if your company is successful and you do really well, you grow from being a startup who needs advisors and mentors to a company that a new startup looks at and says, hey, wow, maybe you guys could be my mentor and my advisor. So Try the World has been around since 2013. They have, at this point, shipped over 3 million products, which is kind of amazing. Um, One of the unique elements about what they do is that they actually help the small producers in points of far navigate the import system in the US to actually get their products here to go to market. and they have done such a great job. And their products are beautiful. The packaging is great. You know They have a lot of ancillary information about how to use things and where they come from. We have them here today to sort of be the roles of the mentor and advisor to Eric, who just had his company go live online this year in May and is really at the very, very beginning process. And Eric's company specializes in Asian foods, um, from you know personal history, personal experience, bringing foods from his family and his life to the rest of the world. And also, it's worth noting that Asian food is kind of hot in the food world. Korean Asian food, Dave Chang, Momofuku, you have Mission Chinese, and sriracha, I think, has never been hotter. When you see sriracha-flavored potato chips from, like, Lay's, and sriracha flavored Triscuits, you know that it's gone mass. So it's also a great time, I think, for you to be coming in. So we brought the two uh, companies together, and the three of them together, so they could have a little conversation about you know, how things work and what best to do. And Eric comes from a TV production background, as he mentioned, video production. And for him, we had an earlier chat, um, he's really interested in sort of the content component as well. So um, how best to start this? Do we is it a chicken and egg? Should we just let Eric start asking questions cuz he's the startup startup?
2: I could I could start with, uh, with a question go. to see if we can uh have a cool conversation. I think the biggest thing for me was I look at products and I look at content and I think in Asian food, international food uh it, it's tough to explain something. And so for example, sriracha everybody knows, but if I said gochujang, you'd be like if you don't know Korean food, you'd say, well, what is that and why should I care about it? And I think my biggest passion in doing a malicious was trying to create the why for, for people to care about a product, to care about where it comes from and, and even how to use it. And so you know, we have a sort of a long-term plan of building enough content to, to develop a storytelling platform for all, uh, as many Asian food uh, products as possible so that people become comfortable with it. Because even though, as you said, Jen, Asian food is hot, I don't know if the confidence at the home level is there for people to want to cook it necessarily. I think going out and eating it and listen Panda Express has been around for a long time so Chinese food has been accepted in America but when was the last time your friend said hey I can make you General Tso's chicken and but I'm going to make a healthier version of it. And so my, my first question is for try the world I mean you guys started with a snack almost like a snack box where it was a bunch of different snacks and different ingredients. And I recently lo- saw that you guys opened a pantry, and so if you could sort of figure out why did you start with snacks, and then, and then why did you decide to go into the, the pantry business?
4: Sure. That's a great question. Uh, so as a quick intro, we started the business in uh, 2013. Uh, both David and I were actually in graduate school at Columbia, and uh, like you, we, uh, we realized there's a huge demand uh, for products from around the world that people had trouble finding, uh, at the same time, uh, it needed to come with some uh, materials and content for them to feel very confident about how to use the products and the stories behind them and why they're so special. So like you, it's always been a big part of uh, Try the World's philosophy. And so we actually started with our signature country box subscription, uh, which you see here. It's uh, it's a box from a different country every time with uh, cooking ingredients, snacks, and a drink. And it's curated by a Celebrity or a Michelin star chef uh, that knows a lot about the cuisine. We never wanted it to be, you know, Cat and David's pics of, uh, you know, food from Thailand uh, because we're not experts in Thai food. Uh, But, you know, an expert who actually shows you what's authentic and how you can incorporate it into your daily life. Uh, So that's always been a part of it. Um, And we realized that it needed to be a very balanced curation of things that people might expect. From the box, but also some uh, unexpected, interesting finds. Uh, so it's kind of like when you travel, you want to see the Eiffel Tower in Paris, but you also want to walk down the unbeaten path uh, and you know find something really cool. So when you
3: say expected items balanced up against the unexpected, that's a great combination. Um, when you say expected, things like. Sweets or snacks or cookies, do you mean the category or something expected that people
4: would imagine they would have in that country? Something they would imagine they would have in that country. So, so in Italy, it would maybe be pasta, pasta or you know, tomato sauce or something like that. So you want to make sure you, you have that so they feel comfortable when they open the box at first. But as they keep uh, digging through the items, they discover something very interesting and new.
1: And, and to build on what Kat said, so we started with the uh, the signature subscription.
3: What was the first country, just if I can ask, out of curiosity?
1: Uh, I think we did France. It was okay. uh, uh, Valentine's Day. It was February 2013. Sounds like a home
3: run. Yes. <laughs> we sold out in two days. <laughs> okay. And you, you
1: were referring to uh, incubators and mentorship. We actually started um, at school, but we were doing an incubator at Google uh, here in New York. And it was a 6 weeks program. To help us build a minimal viable product, which was a valentine 's Day Paris box, and we uh, we were just packing it at night uh, and trying to ship them as, as quickly as we could because uh, people were very interested it 's really between food and travel that 's how we got started and realized that actually there was a, a huge gap in the market. We realized that you know there was there wasn 't that many options for people to shop for the most authentic food online millennials, the new generation of consumers hate going to supermarkets. Uh, we just don't have time.
3: I think they hate shopping generally given the number of businesses that have been developed for order and home delivery across the board.
1: Exactly. It goes both ways. It's uh, You don't like it so you have these businesses which come up and at the same time they come up and they actually deliver uh, and so you want to actually use them. And.
3: They enable you to not have to leave your couch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is a good and a bad thing. But hopefully with Try the World, you actually discover new places and then you want to travel to these places. And we really operate in the food industry, started with the signature box, then realized that it was a huge market for snacking in the U.S. Uh, a lot of people in the U.S. snack at home or at their office every day between uh, between actual uh, meals. Um, and so we wanted to bring a little bit of discovery and excitement to that snacking habit. So
3: was the snacking, was I mean, to go back to the basis of Eric's question, why the snack box first out of the gate is that because it's was sort of easier to manage because it is snacks because it's not curating sort of a complete meal experience or something as diverse or snacks are more familiar to people and
1: yeah they they are in a way that it's it's a little bit more accessible you don't need to cook. So it requires a little bit less time. You can enjoy them right away. Um, In terms of uh, the the product mix that you have available on trytheworld.com, there is the Signature Box that we launched in 2013, Snack Box that we launched actually very recently, a couple months ago, and as you mentioned, Pantry, uh, which is a membership that we just launched.
3: Membership. What does that mean?
1: So the idea behind Pantry is that First of all, people always buy the same products over and over. When we go to supermarkets, we always buy the same brands. And also we don't like to go to supermarkets. So the idea is that you go on trywell.com, you sign up for pantry, fill out a questionnaire with your preferences. So you tell us I love coffee, I never drink tea, I like pasta but I don't, you know, eat spicy, etc. Based on a bunch of questions in your lifestyle and the size of your household as well, we come up with a customer profile and we send you packages um, at the right time with the right products so you discover great products similar in terms of categories as the ones you already buy in your pantry Um, they're just better a little bit less expensive and they're very authentic and they are delivered so we're trying to replace your supermarket uh, habit with an algorithm as, as we're that's it's all about the algorithm. I was talking about before. <laughs> uh, that, that really helps you discover the most authentic food from around the world. And as you mentioned, we work with mid-sized producers. So we help them get access to the U.S. market and get exposure uh, among uh, U.S. consumers.
3: So, Eric, you're at a very, very different place with your company, only being a few months old at this stage. You're selling about 80 products individually, and then you have a few Kits. kits. So the kits are to create specific recipes and yeah, try this, different things?
2: The one thing that we did in our sort of customer research and surveys, you know, number one reason why people like Asian food. They, they think they cook it once a week or once every two weeks. Um, and I said, what is the biggest hurdle for you to cook it more often? And they say, A, I don't own a wok. And it was very common that Asian food is associated with owning a wok. And so we said, well, we're only going to use skillets and fry pans and pots in, in all of our videos. So pretty important piece of information because most of the time when you see Asian food on TV, it is a wok. Every time you go to that local Thai restaurant, it is a wok. So so the wok association is something that we want to get past. It's
3: fascinating. Yeah. It's and the, a sa- fascinating piece of information.
2: And the second reason, at least in New York City, our our, our customers are saying it's just easier to order. It, it, we, we get so much cool stuff you know the best some of the best pad thai that you could make is around the block if you live in hell's kitchen there's 20 Thai restaurants and so we have to kind of get through this convenience and comfort and also flavor so i think we we sort of go into the direction of curating these pantry kits so that it's not just about making one dish but that we sort of open up your pantry and say well here's what we feel like is going to set you up for success on any type of asian foods because these are sort of the essentials and then we recently partnered up with Matt and Rodbard and Dookie Hong to provide a pantry kit with cookbooks. Pe-
3: tell people who the, those gentlemen are.
2: Sure. Matt Rodbard is a friend and um, journalist, author, um, you know, and him and Dookie have been friends for a long time, and they wrote a book called Koreatown the Cookbook. That Dookie
3: sp- is the chef of a Korean barbecue restaurant in Manhattan, in Koreatown on 32nd Street off Fifth Avenue. It is extremely popular. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of it because it's...
2: It's called Kanghodo Pekjong.
3: Yes. And exactly. it doesn't sound like it, but there's a lot of Bs in there when you look at it, how it's spelled.
2: It's. They call it Pekjong for short, and uh, it's It's probably the most popular Korean restaurant, and, and, and he's done a fantastic job with the food. and.
3: So they wrote a book together.
2: They did. They wrote a book together. And again, the problem for us that we wanted to solve was, well, if you have the book, it doesn't... That necessarily enable you to cook the recipes in the book because you're still missing the ingredients and the problem that we found was people don't know what to buy when they go to their local grocery store and if they go to the asian grocery store they don't know who to ask for help and so hopefully through a curated kit partnering with cookbooks asian cookbooks hopefully in the future we can provide something that enables you to receive the cookbook that you buy but also cook with it right away and not say you know, I'm missing this mirin or I'm missing this fish sauce and so um, our perspective is again providing a story and the story for Koreatown the Cookbook was providing a pantry kit and we just launched uh, a bunch of videos this week that show you some of the recipes um, on video
3: So we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to see how all those launches are going and what the next stage is for Eric and his company and if Kat and David can help him out. This is Tech bites. Stay with us mm-hmm.
0: this is peter kim the executive director of mofad the museum of food and drink we're a nonprofit founded by dave arnold the host of cooking issues here on the heritage radio network and we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food we just opened mofad lab our gallery space at 62 bayard street in williamsburg brooklyn where we are currently showing flavor making it and faking it flavor features some very cool sensory interaction flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami and the willy wonka inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors so come on by and visit mofad lab we're open five days a week and tickets are five dollars for kids and ten dollars for adults learn more about the museum of food and drink at mofad.org
3: Welcome back. And if you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes at the Heritage Radio Network, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is a couple of companies that specialize in discovering and shipping international foods directly to you in a variety of forms. First up, we have Try the World, which you can find at trytheworld.com. They're also on Twitter and Instagram. We have the two founders, Kat Vorotova and David Foe, who are here giving some really good advice on how they took their company to three million products sold in six years. To Eric Rhee, who is the founder of a newly launched food website called umlicious.com, U-M-L-I-C-I-O-U-S.com, and it specializes in Asian, specifically Korean food. So Eric's here to hopefully get some good pieces of advice and wisdom from Kat and David. It's such a critical part of the startup tech world where you have successful people who are further along in their companies helping The newer companies along. So Eric, you were just about to ask a question right before we went into the break.
2: Yep. So for me, the, one of the biggest challenges, um, and I think we, we, uh, had a perspective of who our customer was going into the launch of our, of our business. And, um, I was completely wrong about who I, who I thought our customer was, and so can from, you
3: tell us who you thought they were and who w- they actually are?
2: Yeah, so we interviewed a bunch of young, sort of millennial, you know, foodies in New York City. Um, you know, women, men. Just we thought the twenty seven, twenty nine year old, sort of young, working urban urban professional would be our best customer. And based on the data that we look at, our best customer is 35 to 45 female Midwest. I mean, people in places where you can't get Asian food, and we got a few. I mean, literally California, Maryland, um, Virginia, Kansas, Chicago, Michigan. I mean, places where I couldn't even forecast the fact that we would. We can't even do a focus group because I I, I don't know that demographic, and so. My, my question and advice is, how many times do you guys have to pivot who you target, how you target? Since, since we're online companies, we try to be smarter and say we think we want this person, but I feel like I made the mistake of making an emotional decision on who I wanted our customer to be versus doing a little bit more research. And so I'm at a point where right now is I'm a little confused on who I should be targeting because our customer is very different from who I thought it was going to be.
4: That's super surprising and very, very interesting and, and, and such a cool part of uh, starting a business, actually, is discovering who is going to use your product. Um, for us, similar to you, we had a hypothesis of who may be interested in Try the World services. And uh, over time, we realized different offerings appeal to different kinds of demographics. And uh, that's what's also really exciting because we can bring uh, an interesting service to different people. So, for instance, with uh, our original signature subscription box, um, we uh, assumed it would be mostly women. And we actually designed the product to appeal to women a bit more. Uh, so, for, for instance, the color of the packaging is, uh, even though it's gender neutral, it does appeal more to women. It's this uh, sort of Tiffany green, uh, beautiful color. And we also knew that women typically make most of the food purchasing decisions still today. And so uh, that was our original hypothesis, and it actually turned out to be true. Uh, Mostly, uh, right now, the majority of our customers for the signature subscription service are millennial women, so between uh, 24 and 34 primarily. But it does appeal to older people as well, especially people with a bit more time. Uh, It appeals to people with kids who want to educate their kids about the world, uh, people buy it for their grandparents, uh, it's really, it varies. Uh, versus Snackbox, for instance, really appeals to younger, younger millennials, uh, people who don't have time to cook, uh, gamers who are, you know, uh, snacking while gaming. Uh, so that, that was pretty interesting. Uh, and then Pantry, our goal is to be able to uh, deliver an amazing product for almost anyone uh, because we can collect your preferences and then send you the right product at the right time.
3: So did you upon discovering the new audience groups we have we have the try the world box for Thailand sitting on the coffee table here and it's beautiful it's still the beautiful mint green nice heavy you know cardboard paper it's still very feminine you haven't changed sort of the model of what it is even though it sounds like you have people outside that demographic so i think the question is did you pivot at all as you had new people coming on or is something like the pantry where it just becomes a more open marketplace your pivot or was that always something that you had on deck anyway
4: yeah we always wanted to customize the product in the future we knew that's that was the future of food um and when we started we just started with kind of the earliest adopters and we created um we created a product for them and then with pantry we can expand Um, I would recommend going with a demographic that you know is very engaged and learning as much as possible uh, about what they like, what they're interested in, and then creating a product that really resonates with them and creating a very passionate community um, so that they can spread the word. Once you have this engaged and passionate audience, you can start expanding.
3: Well, the interesting thing, I think, which might be part of the reason why key your demographic has I'm sorry Eric <laughs> why your demographic has um, been surprising to you is that people who do live in urban centers where they do have access to Asian restaurants and Asian communities. New York City is renowned for having multiple... Uh, Asian communities, Chinatown, Koreatown, Little Tokyo, where we have access to products in you know those supermarket neighborhoods, and then you know trickle down into mainstream like market shelves. And to your point, the people in these other cities don't have access to those kinds of things. So, if you do have one person or a couple people who love you know pad Thai and they just can't find it in their town, you almost, I would think that you would almost need people to be removed from the opportunity of being able to buy it or have it or order it already.
2: Yeah, and the other th- thing is we don't really do snacks, and so you have to find people who cook. And
3: Yeah, you don't do snacks yet.
2: Yeah, we don't <laughs> do snacks yet. Um, I think there's good margin there, and, and the problem with Asian snacks is, you know, we sort of skew towards if we can find really high quality products, um, there's still a lot of challenges with stuff coming from asia that you know we don't necessarily feel good about carrying and so but we have you know even our soy sauce it's made in kentucky um and the one that we we really love telling the story of a bur- is a bourbon barrel aged soy sauce that's made with non-gmo soybeans but in a japanese uh, tradition and we love that story uh, red boat fish sauce we carry because it, it, it just chefs work with it and cook with it and so you know, we're still we're still we're focusing on quality, but uh, quality tells a better story. And I think um, you know we're we're very early. I mean, if you look at our, I'm looking at my box and your guys' box, and I'm like, you know, I looked at doing boxes, and everyone said just make sure people want the products inside the box before you start spending crazy money on on the actual box. But it's a debate that you can have with yourself forever on do you spend tens of thousands of dollars on custom boxes or not? And I look at it now, and I'm like, I probably should have, but then. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I, My sort of follow-up question is, for, for you guys, is is the future to, you know, I, I still spend $10 to ship a box, right? And so for you guys, when you go into the pantry business, when somebody says you curate something, you, you have this algorithm, and they say, you know what? You guys got this wrong. What is your guys' policy going to be? Because for us... I, I just right now because we're so early I just refunded and I don't want any issues um, and hopefully people who listen to this don't take advantage of that policy but for you guys you guys are almost guaranteeing an algorithm and unlike Spotify you don't return a song but if you send them the wrong sauce that they don't like what will you do and, and how will you approach that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, we've been very flexible in terms of returns. Uh, we're introducing products that people d- don't necessarily know. And so it's also a, a risk. At the same time, we believe in our curation process. And so we have a very strict process to uh, make sure that we feel comfortable that you know most of our subscribers will actually enjoy the products. Now, if there is an issue, I mean, if it's a taste problem, it's really difficult to, to justify the, the return. But if it's a, a problem that has a... You know, an, an uh, internal issue. Then, yeah, they they can they can actually return it, of course.
3: You bring up an interesting question on the packaging. Um, given you know that try the world was intended to focus towards women, and women are very interested in packaging and things like that. I asked the question to both groups, both companies. What's your point of view about packaging in terms of the whole? Environmental zero waste pre-cycling is a movement that we're starting to see now, and I'm a fan of of great packaging. I actually have the Try the World box on on the bookshelf um, at home, and I'm using it to store things because it is a lovely box. I appreciate quality boxes, but on the larger scale, you know, three million products—that's great. At, at what point do you do you have thoughts about balancing packaging and shipping? with that environmental question. Because, you know, Key, you could... Uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying Key because I'm looking down and it says re, Eric Re. You could sort of go to the side of being, you know, more environmentally friendly, the minimal packaging. You could let people know that, you know, this is a point of view that you're taking and then when people receive the products, if it's super minimal and doesn't have this, that, and the other, they'll know that you've made a conscientious decision to, you know, save some landfill space.
2: Yeah, we when we started, uh, we looked at all sorts of packaging options. We looked at custom, and what I, I wanted to go with some stuff readily available. Um, so we went with the white box from Uline, um, and then we even looked at some of the, I mean, we looked to try the world. We looked at some of the other companies out there, and they do this nice sort of shredded paper. And I just said we can't do shredded paper. It's just there's no point in this. I mean, to to the extent that, it's just extra packaging that's not necessary. and And the question was, you know, in our heads, does it really impact the experience? And I think 100% the box and the colors and the design definitely do. But for us, it was, well, they've already made the purchase. And so does it bring down the experience or does it, you know, elevate the experience or does it affect the purchase? And we decided that it's going to come from the content and the storytelling and then the packaging almost – sort of we took the Amazon approach of let's just get the product to them in the safest possible way with the least amount of packaging. Um, I won't say we're at frustration-free packaging level yet, but uh, we strive to to minimize packaging and we strive to use stuff that's readily available, but I also strive to have our own custom box one day, but I don't know how to become an e-commerce site that has to have 10 different boxes for who knows what our order is going to look like in, in, in a year
4: from now, so... Yeah, I mean, we experimented with lots of packaging options, and we started with a white box as well from Uline. Uh, that's the way you start, and you can customize it a little bit. You can put a sticker on it, or you can put a ribbon on it, or just, I mean, it depends on your experience as well. For, for us, we really wanted it to be a, a premium experience because the quality of the products are, is also very premium, very nice. Um, The environmental impact for us was also very important from the beginning. The types of product we select typically are sustainable or have some sort of positive social impact in their communities. Uh, so we didn't want to be wasteful either. Um, what was important to balance is actually the safety of the product, And I'm sure you're struggling with that as well. If you're, if you're including glass, for instance, you want to make sure it doesn't break in transit. If you're shipping uh, via UPS or USPS, they're throwing the boxes. And, um, you know, in the beginning, we had pretty high breakage rates, actually. So we needed to use wood shred or, you know, some kind of uh, packaging material inside. And we experimented with, you know, uh, Uh, packing peanuts and things like this and and very quickly we realized we don't want to use packing peanuts or any kind of plastic so we actually custom designed a a special mold um to keep the box from breaking Uh, and it took some time to develop this but it was totally worth it and now we have almost zero percent breakage rates uh, which is of course uh helpful for the customer experience and also for return rates uh they're very low um
1: and Also related to uh, the point that you mentioned regarding uh, where the product is actually made, um, a, a big environmental impact is the way you import products. And so in our case, we make sure that we, in 99% of the cases, import by boat. So we we have products shipped when we import them from around the world. We import products from dozens of countries. This year, we'll be importing about 4 million products just in 20... uh, 4
3: million products in 2016. Wow.
1: And so... uh, Is
3: that line items, like SKU numbers, or 4 million, like, units?
1: Yeah, units. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so, and so, importing by boat is very important versus by air. Right.
3: You know, that's a that's a great point. Whenever I see, when I go into my apartment building, and there are piles and piles and piles of Amazon boxes and Mint and all the different delivery and you know Blue Apron and everything you can imagine just piled up in in the hallway, I really wonder about that and think about what the impact is on all of this extra shipping that's happening in the world. So the boat piece is very interesting
1: to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is a a great point. I mean, the the way I think we we see it is also that commerce is moving online. And so, you know, we're in the the business of specialty foods or shelf-stable food, and people more and more buy these products online versus going to supermarkets. So one could argue that what you're actually losing by shipping through e-commerce is something that you're gaining by not actually driving to supermarkets. The
3: the idea of mass transit for your grocery shopping, that instead of a person driving their individual car to the store, you know, they're... Their coffee and hot sauce
4: takes a bus to the apartment. And it's
1: in bulk because <laughs> you have many coffees in the same yeah. bus. Yeah.
4: And, and what, what else is very interesting is we realize that there are so many inefficiencies and waste in the global food supply chain. And from where the product is produced to getting it to the customer, there are actually four middlemen. And uh, because the supply and demand are not always matched, there is actually waste of food happening along the chain. So, for instance, the producer will make uh, the product. uh, They'll ship it first to an exporter. Then an exporter uh, ships it to an importer. Then there's a distributor that picks it up, and then a distributor sells it to a retailer. So, along this chain, there are inefficiencies happening. Not only does it add to waste, but also to the cost of the product itself to the consumer. And that's something that we realized early on. At first, we were buying from retail stores back in 2013. Uh, we just went to French gourmet stores, bought the products, and we knew that we wanted to eventually skip the entire supply chain. So today we actually operate as an importer, distributor, and a retailer. And that saves a lot of margin for 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 the company, but also for the consumer that we can pass on.
3: And it's also just better not to waste stuff. I mean, yeah. just generally, it's good not to throw away things that are good. Um, I think it goes back to... Something that Eric said at the beginning of the show when he was talking about the amazing Valley parking app. It's transparency. Um, And I think as we get used to all these new services and online conveniences and and sort of curating our lives and bringing everything to us, the transparency of how these things are actually happening, those conversations, I have to believe, are really coming in a more significant way. We're already seeing them in the restaurant world. We've done a show here on... Um, the third-party delivery platforms that restaurants use. Are they good for restaurants? Are they bad for restaurants? People were really surprised to learn that a lot of them are really bad for restaurants because of the way they function and the margin prices. And, you know, so too, all the shipping that's happening of bringing things, moving things around the world, you know, conversations are going to start to happen about who is, you know, doing it in a great way that's you know better for the planet environmental and those kinds of things and who isn't i would be i'm going to just say this real quickly and then we have to go i would be curious to know if um either of you companies would consider something like you know you go to the store now you can bring your own bag would you do something for try the world maybe somebody's sending a gift they obviously want that beautiful amazing wrapped luxury experience but for your regular customers or people who repeat order, would you maybe give people the choice to say, I want the super deluxe gift box that comes for regular, but actually I'm a pantry user, so I get my stuff every week. So I will take the total no-frill shipping
4: because I don't care about That's that. That's all we have for pantry and snack box. It's oh, more of a convenience there we go. experience. So we definitely... Um, want people to get the best value and right. also not That's feel great. like they're wasting packaging. Something
3: to think about on the packaging front.
2: Definitely. I mean, it's 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 a good reason to not do custom packaging because for us, again, um, we're, we're content storytelling, and if you get the products and you're happy, um, maybe we'll do limited time gift boxes. But I think for us, we're 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 going after the Amazon customer who's buying their stuff on Amazon. That's basically what they're where they're shopping now, and so. If Amazon's not doing custom boxes, why should we? And if 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 the product is important, I think try the world is different because it's a curated box. And so, to the extent that I mean, I would even go, not necessarily the word ugly, but I would go to a fully recycled box if I could do it because, and and even you know pass that savings on to the customer because it's not about, for us, it's not about the box; it's about the products inside the box. So.
3: Well, I want to, we are out of time and it's a sad thing because there are so many things I would love to talk about with these people, um, because food in the world and bringing it to you and people and business is really important right now, but that's all the time we have before we let everyone go. I always like to ask everyone for a little piece of advice for listeners to maybe use and make a change in their life. So Eric, I'm going to ask you real quickly, because you are in video production, and that's your specialty. So much of social media right now is all about video, You know, Snapchat, Instagram stories. What's your best advice to people for making the best videos with their smartphones?
2: Um, from a From a technical perspective, I would say find a tripod and hold that camera as steady as possible. I think people try to walk and shoot video at the same time, and it, only causes headaches. Um, so if you can find a little tripod for five ten dollars, just put it on a tripod and, and sort of um, sit yourself down or, or stand up and just get a steady shot. Steady shots are the best thing for video. And then from a storytelling perspective, um, tell your story. I, I would say you know most people try to entertain people and try to do stuff that's a little bit uncomfortable. I, I would say. You know, looking back on it, pretend you're going to watch this video ten years from now, and it, it's going to reflect who you are in, t- in this time. And so, just keep that in mind before you you shoot video of something. And and it's you know, it's something that I, I, I make sure that every piece of video I shoot I, I I would like to be proud of ten years, twenty years from now. So,
3: good advice. The the, the gentle reminder that the internet's going to last forever. To Cat and David, so much of I I think. Um, what your business about is really sharing, you know, food with people and, you know, the boxes It seem to almost be geared exactly towards having a dinner party. So I would ask each of you just really quickly, what's your best piece of advice for having a great dinner party?
4: I would say setting the mood and having the right people at the party. So maybe get that Spotify personalized playlist to set your music mood.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There you go.
1: Yeah, maybe ask people to come a little bit early and cook something together.
3: That's good. That's always a good one, people cooking together. And then it also, if you're the host, sort of lightens the burden a little bit. Well, that's great advice um, from our guests, Kat and David from TryTheWorld.com. And Eric Rhee from Umlicious.com. Really appreciate you coming out and having this conversation, which kind of made me hungry and snacky. Thank for you those, of, yeah. For those of you listening, Tech Bytes is every Thursday at eleven a.m. on the Heritage radio network.org I say .org because we are a nonprofit five hundred one c three charity. We keep the lights on and we make radio because of our listeners, members, and underwriters. If you like this show and you want to hear more shows like it, go to radio network.org, Click the beating heart and become a member. You know, maybe give us what you spent on you know lunch today on your pad Thai. If you really like this show, click on your donation page to designate it for Tech Bytes, and I will send you an electronic cookbook. I'm Jennifer Layutzi, and this is Tech Bytes.
2: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website,